Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is a podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the four things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule that they cherish and adore, and the one thing they'd like to put in there so they can bury it in the ground and forget it. That's it. Five things from their life. Four they love, and one they loathe. Simple, really, like me. Okay, my guest in this episode, I'm pleased to say, is an old friend of mine, who, like a lot of my old friends, I don't get to see anywhere near as often as I'd like. Paul Clayton is an actor and director, best known for playing Olivia Colman's dad in the BAFTA-winning series Peep Show with David Mitchell and Robert Webb, and also Graham in the brilliant series Him and Her with Russell Tovey, Sarah Soleimani, and two friends of my time capsule, Kerry Howard and Joe Wilkinson. He's also just finished filming a major new series for Disney, which I'll let him tell you about in this episode. Paul has worked for most of the major theatre companies in the UK. The Royal Exchange Manchester, York Theatre Royal, Nottingham Playhouse, Leicester Haymarket, Birmingham Rep, Exeter Northcott, the Greenwich Theatre, and he's also been on several major national tours. He's a much sought-after director of stage shows as well, all over the country. Paul was a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company in the 1980s for four years, and his London appearances include Capulet in Romeo and Juliet at the Shaw Theatre, and a role that he created, Tony Whitcomb, in the improvised whodunit Scissor Happy at the Duchess Theatre, which I was lucky enough to do with him, although I was nowhere near as good at improvising as he is. Paul's numerous television appearances include One Foot in the Grave, Drop the Dead Donkey, Doctor Who, Wire in the Blood, Coronation Street, Doctors, My Family and Hollyoaks, among many others. His recent appearances include Danny Boy, Breeders, Holby City, Shakespeare and Hathaway, Delicious, Drifters, Wolf Hall, The Frankenstein Chronicles, Mr Selfridge, Black Earth Rising, The Split and The Crown. Yes, that's just recent work. 
In the corporate world, Paul is famous for his ability to help people improve spoken communication within the workplace and is one of the top directors of corporate events in the world. His novels, yes, he writes as well, The Punishment and The Hoax, are available from Amazon and other major booksellers. Paul is a very proud patron of Grimm and Company, a literary charity based in Rotherham, as well as the Hope Theatre in Islington, as you'll hear. Paul and I started our chat by talking about other podcasts, as you do. Paul, of course, was typically forthright, which is what I'm sure you're going to love about him, as I do. Here's the fabulous Paul Clayton. It's a bit like the gay ones where you have to say cock a lot. Yeah. I did one and then Russell T. Davis, bless him, sent me a message going, I absolutely loved it. You were very funny. I don't <laughs> think I've heard the word cock so many times in 30 minutes since I was at school. <laughs> since I was a chicken farmer. Yeah, I know. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. All right. Well, let's do it. All right, baby. Paul, let's talk about the five things you'd like to put into a time capsule. Fascinated to find out because you've got to choose from the most enormous collection of things in your life. I know, and it's difficult. But I think I'm at a stage now where you are thinking about what makes you, you. And there's a very formative thing in my early life, which I have long debated about nature or nurture, because I was adopted mm. at six weeks of age. And whenever people meet my mum, when she comes, well, when they did, she's no longer with us. But mm. when she came to see shows or anything, people would go, oh, I see where you get it from now. <laughs> and you, you go, oh, do you? That's interesting, because she's not my biological mum. But I think the first thing I have to put in the capsule is my adoption certificate. Mm. It has my real name on it, which is Edie, E-A-D-Y, and I know nothing about the Edies. Um, and it's rather tragic lately to have heard on the news all that information about girls, women in the late 50s who were made to give up babies. And mm. I don't know whether that's my story. Um, I haven't ever gone into it. But I was always aware of being adopted. I was never aware of being told. My mother always told me and my father from a very young age, probably before I could understand it. Um, and she always told me that once they'd been approved, they'd lost three children. They lost a child after a year, uh, who was born and died after two days. Oh, Lord. Then they lost a child in childbirth the following year. And then they had a little girl about two years later who basically was delivered and then died. And my mum was this little Yorkshire pint pot of love. And mm. I think she was looking for somewhere to, to pour all that love. So 11 years after they'd married, just after the war... They went through the procedure, which I think was much easier in those days to become adoptive parents. And they were mm. told yes. And then they were told that they were to go to Sheffield Children's Hospital on a Saturday afternoon. And they walked down a corridor. And at the end of the corridor was a glass, you know, the archetypal glass window that we shoot every hospital scene in Holby through. Um <laughs> looking into the room, and the nurse pulled the curtain aside, 
And there were six, what my mother referred to in a very Oscar Wildean way as bassinets, I suppose <laughs> cribs or whatever. Yeah. And they had pink or blue ribbons on top uh, in those days, you know, a declaration of supposed gender. And um, they were just told to pick. Good Lord. And um, my mum always said we went the little boy on the end. And I, I quizzed her, particularly when she was quite old and in the care home. I used to take my dictaphone with her to go and talk to her and get her to tell me stories about the war and her early life. And I said, but why? Why? I mean, you know, was I doing jazz hands in the crib <laughs> or something at the end? You know, was I a rating in some form? And she went, no. And she said, we didn't spend any time choosing. She said, we just stood there and your father stayed silent like he did for most of his life. Mm. And my mother just turned and went, we'll have the little boy on the end. And that decision, that Saturday afternoon in April 1957, changed my life and started me on the journey to whatever I am. They must have been absolutely desperate for a child. What a situation to be in. How marvellous that they knew instinctively the child to go for. Yeah, that is marvellous. And it's also rather wonderful to know that you were wanted, mm. that somebody picked you. Yes, there are a lot of children born who are told, we didn't really want you, you were an accident. <laughs> You're not an accident. No, well, not in terms of birth. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, 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 it is. And it's a great beginning, really, to think, because... I'm reminded of it every time I go to the doctors, and particularly when, as we've got to a certain age, and they go, is there any history of um, uh, in your family? Mm. And you go, doctor, I have no idea. No. I have no idea what biologically waits around the corner for me, you know? so uh, Have you never been tempted to look back into it to find out who that person was? I think I was tempted in my teenage years when, I suppose, like everyone, I thought I had the worst parents in the world. <laughs> Um, and that living in a corner shop in Yorkshire was not my destiny. And obviously I was really a lost member of a major European royal family <laughs> and um, should be at a boarding school with Jennings and Derbyshire and a fag. Yes. And um, why couldn't I be there? And why was I trapped in this hellhole of working class love? And, uh, <laughs> and Full and, of sweets that you weren't allowed to eat. No, and trade, Michael. Michael, I come from trade. Oh. Oh, my word. How have you managed to live it down? I don't know, darling. I very <laughs> rarely mention it. It's about to be revealed to the world in something I've just done for television. But, um, ah. but I, I think the thing is, is that um, in those days, it was very, very difficult to... In fact, I don't think you could do it until you were 18, which mm -hmm. was, I think, a remarkably sensible decision that you had to become of an age where you could, you know, vote to bring down the country at the same time as find out who your parents were. I don't know what I would have done as a 14 or 15-year-old if somebody said, that woman over there is your mother. Because mm. the woman who was my mother was the little short... I mean, both my parents came up to my shoulders, you know. Yeah. Biologically, yeah. I'm six foot two, and they were like five, six or whatever. But I think it's just that thing of it was excellent guidance in those days to say just wait and see how you feel and by the time I'd got to 18 so many other things were filling my life and my parents were so supportive of my dreams mm. to go into the theatre and, and and all that you know school wanted me to go to Oxbridge and I went no 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 I want to go to drama school 
And although they had no history or connection with the theatre or the world of entertainment, um, they were very much, you have to do what you want to do. Um, Fabulous. So they would have seen quite a bit of it then as well. Yeah. My dad saw less than my mum because they had shops. We had two village shops and they took a lot of lives. So uh, it meant separate holidays. I would go on holiday with dad, salmon fishing to Scotland and then go to Mm. um, regularly to the Metropolitan Rialto of Bridlington. Oh, the Lonsborough Hotel has set standards that the Premier Inn very rarely matches. Um, <laughs> They're proud to say. Uh, yes. <laughs> so we had this several... So Mum would quite often come and see things. And mm. but the real tragic thing was that I got into the RSC in 1983. And in those days, that was all our ambitions as young actors. You know, we went from yeah. drama school to repertory, repertory... We wanted to be either in the West End or to go to the RSC. And I got to the RSC and Ben Kingsley had just been released to the world in Gandhi. And I went home for the weekend. And my dad, who was rather taciturn and quiet, sort of at one point on the Sunday lunchtime as we were serving in the shop, which was open before we closed for a family Sunday lunch, Mm. my dad just suddenly said to me, this Gandhi was in the RSC, weren't he? (laughs) And I went, I don't think the leader of the faith was actually at Stratford-upon-Avon, but if you mean if you mean Ben Kingsley, yeah, yeah, he was. So it was a sort of seal of approval. And then we were planning a weekend where they would get the redoubtable anti-mural to look after the shop for the weekend, and they would come to Stratford and see a couple of shows. Mm. And on my second show in Stratford about 4 weeks in I got a phone call at the stage door that he'd been in hospital and he'd got stomach cancer. Oh. And I spent 8 weeks of my Stratford season my phone calls were banned they didn't announce them from the stage door because we were just um waiting for him to die and oh, uh, Lord. I think uh, in the middle of a performance of Julius Caesar, um, the company manager took me to one side and said, um, your mother's just rung from the hospital and your father's died. So uh, he never got to Stratford. He did, a couple of years previous, he did, he was quite into his village charity work. And I can't remember what they were called, whether they were, it was the fellowship, the ex-servicemen's fellowship. They did brilliant stuff for all the kids in the village. It was a mining mm. village. Right. And um, they came to see me in Old King Cole uh, <laughs> with Sandy Toxvig as my daughter <laughs> at Nottingham Playhouse. The only thing was I was playing the Queen uh, <laughs> in very many ways. And he came with a couple of ex-servicemen and 40 kids from the village and the shop. He'd put boxes of crisps and cans of pop on the coach for everybody. And then they were all coming to the Saturday matinee of Ken Campbell's Old King Cole. And I remember Sandy coming in my dressing room and I was busy pulling on a girdle to go under this sort of (laughs) Queen Mother outfit going, my bloody father's out there. Um, (laughs) And loads of kids. Yeah, yeah, uh, (laughs) who are going to have to take me as a middle-aged woman who is in the first act based on the Queen Mother and in the second act is based on Joan Collins in Dynasty. Um, (laughs) And bless him, I said, don't come round afterwards because there's all these kids and everything. So they got on their coach and we didn't have texts or things. So a little bit later I got a letter 
from Walt Bird, who was the chairman of the fellowship, thanking me and saying um, how much the kids had enjoyed it. And mm. uh, just at the bottom of the letter, he put like, and your dad was laughing like blazers. Ah, uh, so that's lovely to know, isn't it? Yeah, it's important to us, isn't it? Yes, it is. And and from everything you say, they were completely accepting of not only the fact that you wanted to go into theatre, be an actor do something that would have seemed completely alien to them. Well, the fact that he thought that Gandhi worked for the RSC mm-hmm. oh. suggests it just wasn't his world. But it's a wonderful thing when people accept absolutely that this is their children's passion, how they want to do it. But also, I don't know, I mean, did you ever have that discussion with your parents about this is my sexuality? No. Was it just clear? Not with Dad. I don't know whether it was clear to him or not. Um, right. I mean, I always, I'm very lucky in that I didn't have a Damascene conversion on the road to, you know, Scarborough or somewhere. That <laughs> oh, I like men. Um, <laughs> I knew that in the school changing room. Um, yeah. The captain of the first fifteen had a particular attraction. But I hadn't had that discussion with them, and then he died, and I never got to tell him, which was a regret. And then. I became friends with my mum after he died, as well as being her son, because I had mm. to I had to give up the family businesses, which she couldn't marry on her own, and buy her a house and sort all that. And the relationship changed. And I thought, this is the time to be really open. And then AIDS came along. Uh, the big adverts on ITV, AIDS week. Uh, mm. And you were telling somebody you had a death sentence. Yeah. If you told somebody you were gay, you were saying, I'm, you know, and I had been quite promiscuous in the early 80s. And like many people, I decided to adopt my behavior as instructions came out. So as particular sexual practices were told to us that that can transmit HIV, then, okay, I will stop doing that. But I can't regret that I did it three months ago. No. But I just felt it. I couldn't tell her. And I didn't tell her for quite a while until we were... I was doing a charity ball for the National Youth Theatre and we'd all worked really hard on the organising committee. And uh, we went to the bar in the Grosvenor House afterwards. This is about two in the morning. Mm. And I remember Lisa Tarbuck being there and being really nice and chatty to my mum. And Mm. Sir Ian, Sir Ian was there. (laughs) Uh, And Sir Ian had just, I think, come out on Wogan. And my mum was chatting with all her H's in place, you know, as you do when you come from the north and you talk to a theatrical knight. Yes. And um, she was being a bit... And I I just checked with her and I said, do you know who Sir Ian is? And she went, of course I do. And I went, well, you know, he's the puff who came out on Wogan last week. Mm. And my mother went, oh, don't be so rude. And I was so indignant that she was slamming me away that I just, I think I'd had a few glasses of wine or so. I Mm -hmm. just said, well, I'm gay too, Mum. And there was a pause. And Lisa Tarbuck, I remember, looked as if to say, do you realise what you've just said? And my mother, without missing a beat, just went, oh, Paul, I wasn't sliced yesterday. Brilliant. I mean, uh, she clearly loved you beyond words, you know. So, I mean, you know, it's an amazing thing. What a great thing to have, that, that birth certificate demonstrate all that devotion by them? Well, I suppose my dad as well, particularly. Funnily enough, I've talked about him not being particularly voluble. 
mm-hmm. both in his relationship with my mother, you know, and in his relationship with me. And for somebody who stood behind a shop counter all day, a shop where the main thing that was sold was gossip in the village. And we had a chair <laughs> on the other side of the counter that people sat on and they were there for <laughs> they were there for forty minutes and then they're left with a small pack of yeast and twenty woodbines, you know. Um <laughs> But actually, my dad sort of links into the second thing that's on my list. Right. OK, well, let's put the birth certificate in and let's move on. OK, that's in there then. So dad drove, mum didn't drive. So it meant that anything in those teenage years, and I'm sure you've experienced this as a dad, you know, you become a taxi service, don't you? Yes. So dad was, you know, Clayton's taxis. And... <laughs> picking me up from school play rehearsals with a car packed with about seven kids who he had to drop off on the way, you know. And in 1973, my school thought it was wise that the volubility, the forthrightness that I had should be put to good use rather than just being told to shut up in class. Um, So they entered me into the Junior Chamber of Commerce National Public Speaking Competition. Oh, And I was actually runner-up in the Yorkshire competition to a rather posh girl from Roundhay in Leeds. Mm. But when we went through to the national competition, they put both the winner and the runner-up through. And it was held in Dewsbury Town Hall on a Saturday. And I'd had two friends from school who'd always come with us, and my dad drove us. And my dad used to either sit at the back or go and find a cafe for a couple of hours And on this day, neither of my friends could come because they were doing Saturday jobs or things. So my dad drove me to Dewsbury. And I think out of sympathy, he came in to listen to me speaking on Quiet Please, the need for noise abatement. (laughs) God, imaginative education system in the 1970s. (laughs) And... um, I spoke on it, and it was great. I didn't have any problem speaking, but I did have a temptation to want to be a little bit disruptive. Perhaps Mm -hmm. that's still there even now. So I spoke about why would anybody want to abate noise, because noise was so enriching to our lives, and some people, unfortunately, weren't even given the chance to hear noise. And here were we saying we were going to abate it, and Mm. that was nonsense. And in the middle of my speech, absolutely unrehearsed, the town hall clock of Dewsbury Town Hall struck three o'clock very loudly. (laughs) And you only had three and a half minutes for your speech. And I stopped and I paused one of the most effective measures to this day to use when you're doing presentations or public speaking. Mm. And I let the bells of Dewsbury Town Clock ring out. And then I just went, now, how many of you would have no idea what time it was if you hadn't heard those bells? Round of applause. I know. And then I carried on, you see. And, of course, that was it. A little bit of impro, Michael, as you know. Yeah, of course. From when when we worked together, darling. Um, (laughs) A little bit of impro. So on my desk behind me, I don't know. Oh, here it is. I will show you. But for the viewers at home, Michael could describe it. This is the National School's Public Speaking Trophy, 1973. Well, that makes an Oscar pale into insignificance. It does, doesn't it? I suspect, I suspect it's from (laughs) 
it may be from one of those trophy shops, but please don't tell me. Okay. Well, I love the idea of public speaking. I love the the skill that people have, and you definitely have it. I've never really noticed it until you mentioned that, though, that you have that wonderful, fluent way of speaking. You hardly ever say, uh, um, we're going to notice it every time now. (laughs) (laughs) That's fucked you up. But you don't. And it's very engaging. And that clearly is a learned skill. I suppose I work uh, alongside my acting. My side hustle is in the corporate world. And Mm. I am luckily in demand as a presentation coach as well as a director of conferences. And I work with a lot of people. And there is research that the third most feared thing after death of a loved one and buying a house is public speaking. Mm. And one has to take people through a familiarising and a routine in order to make them the most effective version of themselves they can be when they are in the spotlight, whether it's a real spotlight on a stage in a big conference or whether it's just that spotlight where loads of people turn to look at you in a meeting yes, and you feel under pressure. Mm. And there are certain natural behaviours that we all do when we're comfortable that goes straight out of the window when that spotlight shines on us. And it's about putting those behaviours back in place. And a lot of people don't know what the behaviours are. And the doing of that is something that has been very supportive to my acting career over the years, but also fascinates me about letting people tell their stories. Yes. The recognition of the power of a pause, though, is very useful. Particularly in acting. I think I once got a job on a pause. (laughs) I sing for my own pleasure. I do not sing for the pleasure of others. And I once went up for a musical in the late 80s at Chichester Festival Theatre to play, well, to sing, first of all. And I was supposed to sing something quite classical or operatic. And the only thing I could manage was... I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables. (laughs) And the girl in front of me, that dreadful thing when you're stood in the corridor of the Pineapple Dance Centre in Balderton Street. Oh, Lord. The woman inside was a coloratura soprano singing the Queen of the Night from the Magic Flute. (laughs) And I was just dissolving into a puddle. So I went in and bit cheeky and went, I'm good. I, I dreamed a dream. But then they said, could you read? And one of the characters is the actor-manager, MacReady, who mm. is dealing with Robert Browning. And um, Browning and MacReady have a little onstage altercation, during which MacReady has the line, I am trying to play your text, Mr. Browning. Your execrable text said pause. <laughs> I pause. (laughs) And they all roared about with laughter. Of course. I got the job. I did that pause every night for three months at Chichester. Never a titter. (laughs) Not a murmur. Oh, Lord. It's a terrible thing when somebody tells you that the thing that you're doing in rehearsal is really funny. Mm. It destroys it immediately, doesn't it? Out of the window. Yes, I had that in a play with the RSC. And all through rehearsal, every time I did this pause, the entire cast would laugh, sitting around. Oh, and oh, God, that's so funny when you do that. It's brilliant. Your timing is amazing. 
And I thought, okay. It never worked. It never got a laugh. Right, let's put that statue in. That Oscar-like prize. Put it in there proudly. That's two things. So let's move on to number three, Paul. Okay, time for some ads, but we will return with more from the very erudite Paul Clayton very soon. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Uh, right, let's um, let's uh, get get straight back to uh, Paul um, uh, uh, Clayton, the man who doesn't do that. The number three is, and people are going to hate me for this. It's a business class air ticket. <laughs> well, only you would know about that. I am lucky to work in the corporate world alongside my acting, extremely lucky. Uh, In my 40s, uh, I got into it while I was directing. I took six years out of acting in my late 30s, early 40s as a director, and time between jobs was longer. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky to get into corporate as, first of all, a presenter and then as a role player and facilitator and now as a consultant. And it just means I fly a lot and I am six foot two and the seat pitch on airlines has considerably reduced over the years. Mm-hmm. So now on anything over 90 minutes, I will have to have a seat up front, business class. Um Funnily enough, we talked about Sandy Toxwig earlier, and Sandy and I went on a corporate job that she got me many years ago. I think it was my first thing. We went to America, and I was thrilled to be doing it, and we were going to pick some American actors to brief them to do some exercise for a corporate company in Atlanta, and Sandy wanted me to do it because I would go to Atlanta. So she and I were going to New York to audition these actors. And I turned up at Heathrow and she got the tickets and everything and we went through and then we got on the plane, British Caledonian, which shows you how long ago it was. (laughs) 
uh, and we turned left. Oh, was that the first time? For the first time ever. Wow, yeah. And business class in those days was classy, you know. She's really going to rattle around in one of those seats. Well, bless her, she needed a box to clamber up. (laughs) Um, And you could smoke. Oh, (laughs) You could smoke. They brought you an ashtray. (laughs) I love the idea of business class because the idea that we're not going to serve people in coach, we're not going to serve them food with metal knives and forks because, as has been proven, and rather disastrously, they can be used to hold people hostage. So we're not going to give you those but we're still going to give them to people in business class. Mm, Because obviously you wouldn't get a hijacker there, would you? No, Al-Qaeda just can't afford it. No, quite. No. (laughs) Um, I think it's the thing, it's just that thing about wanting a little bit more. And I always used to, when I went to Yorkshire to see my parents, and even when times were hard and I was trying to do five interesting ways with a baked potato to get through the week, (laughs) I would always when you could book an advance ticket or anything, spend the extra £3.50 or whatever it was to go in the weekend first or the first-class yeah. carriage. Yes. Because I just think it's that behaviour. of Somebody called it fake it till you make it, and I don't think it's about faking it. I think it's called behave to become. Right. It's yeah. like the confidence thing. If you understand the behaviours of confidence, as you know, you and I... We share a great experience. We can stand in the wings together, as we have done in the West End, but we can both quake with fear, although we are both absolutely capable of what we are about to do. But when we step out there, we have to adopt the behaviours of confidence and assuredness, even though our hearts may be telling us otherwise. But slowly, we become confident and assured. Mm. And that same principle applies to life to dressing, and I'm not talking about dressing in suits, but just dressing, you know, well, going to the best that you can get. And it's hard for people. I do get that. It's anybody who's been, you know, particularly young actors these days with other jobs to do. We've all had times when we've had no money, but it's an attitude. It's uh, saying, I'm going to do or have the best that I can today. And I'm doing that for myself. And the best that I can have is not sitting in row 28 seat F by the window. And these days, my knees just seize up. (laughs) And then I have to be helped from the plane. (laughs) So, hello, Emirates. And occasionally, I will make a concession here. I have been known to do premium economy. Oh, okay. Okay, when times are really tough. Or when I'm paying. Yeah. (laughs) I had a friend, I'm not going to name him, who did a job for British Airways, and they said, well, as you're going to be doing a number of flights to different places to do the filming for our corporate videos, uh, we're going to give you an upgrade card. And so they gave it to him. You're going to be furious at this. When the job was over, they didn't ask for it back. And it didn't have a time limit. Oh, that's brilliant. Isn't that amazing? 
I did a job for British Airways once and I went to Jamaica and Barbados when they launched World Traveller Plus. And I had cast all the actors from South America in London and they were going to do storytelling in British Airways offices around South America mm. about the story. And they had a little suitcase of props and they would tell a story with their props about the luxury of World Traveller Plus and how you could pop up front at any time and get a biscuit. <laughs> Try that now, B.A. Um, <laughs> so we'd done all that. And then the production company said, actually, we need somebody to do Barbados and Jamaica. And they could be done in English. Would you like to do them? And I went, if I must. Um, <laughs> and again, I turned up at the airport with a lovely producer called Joey. And she had the tickets and everything. We were in first class. Oh. And in those days, I drank. <laughs> And that may have been the thing that stopped you. Oh, <laughs> let me tell you, getting me off that plane when we landed in Jamaica, it took men with rifles. There was a there was a half-finished bottle of claret, not the first, no. and they had to lift me out of that. It was, and I wouldn't ever pay for it. And I look, I look into first class and you see the difference. And I think all credit to the people who somebody has paid for them to sit there. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't ever pay for it. But I am very, very thrilled when I turn up at an airport and I can hold that ticket in my hands. I've paid for it once. We went to Australia a couple of years, my ex-husband and I, and mm. um, we decided that as we were both tall and we'd both been for work a lot and always travelled on business class, we paid yes. a lot of money to fly business to Australia. And it was worth it because it's a mm. long flight. But... um it is a thing, and I, I sort of, we don't get many things in our business that we can judge ourselves by. We're not marked. You know, I know we get reviews, but we can't hold the good ones up unless we hold the bad ones up. Yeah. We don't get assessed. We don't get a grading. We don't get KPIs. We're left to work out by ourselves. Are we any good or are we not? And for as many people who say, I really like him, there are another people saying, oh, look who's on the bloody telly again, you know. <laughs> yeah. So my business class ticket is one marker to say that in one area, I've done it. Yes, I'm worth it. Yeah. Because you're worth it. Oh, yes. Somebody should use that as a slogan. It will never work. It will no, never I'm... work. Do you know, also, there's another side to it, which is maybe you've not thought of, I think, is that coming from a little corner shop often – the attitude of people from that sort of background is, oh, no, I, I, I don't like those posh people. That's them. And I don't want to be part of that world. So they, in a way, avoid that sort of luxury because they say, it's not for me. Whereas clearly, you've gone, bugger that. If I can have that, I'm having it as well. Why should they just get it all? I think it started when my Auntie Muriel let me used to look at the Grattan's catalogue. <laughs> you spoiled child. Oh, you know, I'll have those grey flares with the high waistband because then I'll look like that tall, slim man. <laughs> Brilliant. In that case, business class is in there and available to you at all times, sir. OK. If you'd like to turn left. I've turned left in a lot of decisions in my life, I, I think, you know. <laughs> Wisely so. Okay, so we've only got two left. Okay. One more that you want to put in there because you love it and one because you want to put it in there and say bye-bye. Let's do the one that I like. Um, okay. I suppose the nearest place I come from is... Oh, there was an er there. We'll have to edit that out, won't we? <laughs> um, 
The nearest place that people will have heard of I come from is Rotherham, just outside Sheffield. It's mm. actually a little village called Thriber, which nobody can ever pronounce. But I was very aware that in the 70s, I went to a grammar school, I passed my 11 plus, we were all university bound, or in my case, I knew it was drama school. But there was very much a feeling that, you know, if we were successful, we were getting out of Rotherham. And I've always been back to see family. But in 2016, I was invited to become the patron of a charity in Rotherham, a children's literacy charity. And it has a wonderful shop. We've sold that shop. And recently we bought a church, which we're making into an emporium of stories. Wow. Uh, and there is a fantastic woman called Deborah Bullivant who runs it. But um, I am lucky enough to be one of the patrons the lovely Joanne Harris, the novelist, and Jeremy Dyson, the writer. Uh, oh, are, lovely Yeah. But when I became patron, I thought, I'm not sure what a patron should do. Because when I was at the Actors' Centre as chairman, we would have patrons, and then you could never get them to turn up. So I particularly wanted to be an active patron, and I focused on the children writing things and making sure the things they write get to an audience so that you understand the value of putting the work into something because you get the experience of success mm. when it's shared with an audience, when they laugh or when they applaud. So the first thing we did was we took the children's poems and stories and we did a sort of concert in Barnsley Civic Theatre on a Saturday night, um, which was magical. And some actors came up from London and we had plays that were written by the kids. Uh, I played a ship in a bottle who had <laughs> gone to see a used car salesman in Skegness. And the used car salesman, I think, was an oyster. He was an oyster who was a used car salesman in Skegness. Wow, there you are, uh, the inventiveness of children. It's brilliant. It's Amazing. And we don't change a word of their stories. If you come to the store, you can attend a story workshop upstairs in our magical room. And when you finished, and it's been illustrated, because we have live artists who illustrate as the children create their stories, and then everything's sent into the back office. And as the children go down a magical beanstalk, which is a big green slide back to where they started, they are then given a published book of their story when they leave the store. Wow. And then after that because it was a big success and people went, let's do that again. And I don't like doing things again. I went, no, we're not doing it again. So what we'll do now is we'll get all the children to write film scripts and we'll then send them out to independent film companies and get them made. So we made six short films, which we then had a big premiere at the showroom in Sheffield. And then after that, we went to radio, I think probably the most imaginative and demanding medium for writers. Mm. I went to Jeremy Howe, who then was director of drama at Radio 4, and said, these are the children of Rotherham, and I'd like them to write an afternoon theatre, please. Ah, oh, brilliant. And they did. Um, a rather wonderful, miraculous hodgepodge of a story, 45 minutes long, created by about uh, 16 children, and we recorded that in Manchester with a brilliant mm. cast. And then we had lockdown, 
and we were about to open the church we'd bought with a, a fundraising concert. So we did a film online and lots of people, thank you, Olivia Coleman and Gary Oldman, read poems on their iPhones for us. And then last year, I said at the beginning of the year, we need to do something else, something they're all familiar with. And kids, like I was in my upbringing, are all familiar and have their favourite soap opera. So let's get the kids to write a soap opera. Um, (laughs) We happened at that stage to have a temporary office between the shop and the church, which we're just doing up at the moment. Uh, And it was in a little arcade under the old town hall in Rotherham. And it had the name of Linger Longer Lane. Brilliant. And I thought if ever there was a title for a soap opera, it's Linger Longer Lane. (laughs) So the kids wrote four episodes, four or five-minute episodes of Linger Longer Lane, and I said, we'll shoot it. And then I went and got myself a television series. So on my break between blocks of episodes, I took a film crew and ten actors up to Rotherham for two days and I think on day one, we did 68 slates. And on day two, we did 57. Blimey. To create four episodes. Yeah. Almost as quick as EastEnders. Yeah. <laughs> but what's wonderful is that they then share that work with people and they see people's reaction to it. And they realise that if you put something into something, you get something out of it. And way, way back... On the very first morning I went to Grimm & Co in 2016 and we launched to the press, there was a little 10-year-old who was there, one of the kids. And last year I did a big series for Disney. And on the first day we had a COVID read-through, all distanced and um, sat around. And the casting director took me over and said, can I introduce you to Dominic? It's his first ever job. He's from Rotherham. So I want him to just meet somebody who's from Rotherham. So I went over and I chatted to him. And I said, I go back to Rotherham because I work for a charity called Grimm and Co. And he went, oh, I've been to Grimm and Co when I were a kid. <laughs> and on that first Saturday morning, he was a 10-year-old. And now he plays my grandson in the series I've just done for Disney. Oh, how marvellous. What a reward. I know. I, I mean, that's not the aim of these things. As you say, that whole yeah. thing, going back to the ability to speak publicly, being able to control your fear, we all know we're frightened in those situations. In life, those things will occur. There's not much you can do about it. And if you can't handle it, you're going to be disappointed with yourself. And to teach children that actually, if you put the work in, if you make the effort, if you concentrate, you can do all sorts of extraordinary things. It opens up the world for them, I think. There is no point in telling everybody you need to know how to add up and do more maths. Because when we can all add up, we'll all add up the figures and see what an absolutely terrible job this government is doing in every (laughs) single department. But (laughs) one of the reasons that people who do a drama training or who do school plays or who invest in telling people's stories is that in life they can solve problems and they can solve problems by talking clearly and honestly and authentically to people about their feelings and about how they think things should move forward rather than lying to people or reading prepared statements. And that's why the gold standard of education for everybody should be a drama training. Here, here. 
I'm going to put a round of applause after that. Oh, I say, it's so long since I got the clap I so richly deserve. <laughs> it's a standing ovation. Oh. You're quite right. I mean, if you, and particularly if somebody has a passion for it, and I think and if you show people that, what they produce will always surprise you. It's astonishing, the inventiveness of children. I am in a similar position. I'm the honorary president of a children's theatre group in Soham, and they, during lockdown, raised the money to build themselves a theatre. Brilliant. Which is extraordinary. And I went to the opening of it recently. Prince Edward opened it for us. He was very charming. We had lunch. He was very nice. But again, it's the children that are astonishing. They stood up, sang for him, and brought all of us to tears because they were so skillful. They're aiming high. They always aim high. And in life, that's not a bad thing. Not a bad thing to want to sit in business class, to aim high. The other thing is that in my day, we physically had to leave Rotherham to do well. Now you don't. You can log on and you can contact the world, but you can't do that unless you have the imagination about what you could achieve. So building their imaginations, which, as you said earlier, are wonderful, you know, a ship in a bottle buying a car from an oyster in Skegness. Brilliant. It's fabulous. Mm. But it's that imagination that will take that child to wherever they need to go in the world. And these days, it doesn't have to be a geographical shift and everybody has to come to London. And, of course, everybody's life is different. Everybody's life is individual. We're not saying everybody has to do what we do. But in everything in life, the ability to talk to people in a pub, talk to people in a shop not be frightened to say hello to people. And my parents had that, you know, they chatted to everybody. And my mother would come back into the living room behind the shop and I'd say, I I thought you didn't like Mrs. So-and-so. And she (laughs) went, I like her when she's a customer. (laughs) And my Auntie Muriel, who was, I, I don't know whether Alan Bennett ever met my Auntie Muriel, but Auntie Muriel, from the shop, you could see where the bus went to Rotherham and the village green. So you could see who was leaving, who was coming back. Mm. And Auntie Muriel had this gift of being able to serve somebody without ever looking at them because she was busy watching who was getting on and off the bus. <laughs> and um, she'd come out with these fabulous non sequiturs. And I was talking to the writer of the project I did last year, which uh, I'll tell you about in a moment. But um, mm. I, I said, this is the writing for this character I've got is very reminiscent of my Auntie Muriel because he runs a cafe in this series and there she was in the shop and I always remember her standing there and serving somebody a pack of lard or something and just announcing she went well will you look at her running for the bus and her mother's just had a hysterectomy (laughs) why the loss of her mother's womb would affect somebody's ability to run for the 37 bus to Rotherham I do not know Wonderful. Well, Alan Bennett's made a career out of it. So it is. So my fourth thing is one of the is a children's story from Grimm and Co. And I was going to get one to read, and then I thought, when well, in lockdown we had this fabulous gala, and the actor Connor Calland, mm. amongst a very starry cast, but he read a poem that a boy called Connor had written called "This Is My Corner Shop," and I can't watch it online without crying. So my fourth thing would be a story from Grimm and Co. But if you want to experience it, just log on and find This Is My Corner Shop, read by Connor Calland. It's on YouTube. And Connor reads it with a beauty and an honesty that I, I wouldn't even try. Wonderful. Oh, what great things you put in. So I'm interested to find a thing that you want to put in there that you don't want. 
Well, mm. it was hard because, first of all, I thought, what about my marriage certificate or my equity card? <laughs> I've just come out of a 25-year relationship, and um, mm. I'm discovering myself as a single man in my mid-60s. And my equity card, I've just never really understood what it was for. I've had a... <laughs> I, I've had a few discounts, but I think they'd be very, very good equity cards if if we had points like driving licenses. <laughs> so when you're particularly bad, you get three points. And when you've got 12 points, you have to take a year off. Yes, very good. <laughs> but sadly, they don't. Sadly, evidently, it's about solidarity and getting agreements. And when they do get the right agreements, well done. But I've never really known what it was for. So I, I was thinking about those. And then then I started to think about other things, and I'm quite, I'm quite fashion orientated. One of the things that I've just gone through, separation, not my choice, um, somebody else's actions. I didn't feel brilliant for a year, but I thought I can't change how I feel, but I can change how I look. And I was also doing a big telly series, and I thought you look a bit like a tomato, so. <laughs> <laughs> to lose some weight. So I'd lost 20 kilos and I threw out a lot of clothes that I'd had and hello Carhartt and tracksuit bottoms and, mm. you know, I stopped caring a little bit on that front and gone a bit more colourful because we tend to go a bit grey and black when we're older. Yes. We think it's authority, don't we? You and I, we played men in black once for a corporate, didn't we? <laughs> we did, yes. <laughs> we, we invaded strange people's workplaces dressed in black, pretending we knew what we were doing, and then, and then disappearing into a storeroom and cursing each other that we both had mortgages to pay for. Um, but um, I've just done a series, uh, very luckily, about six weeks after realising I was about to be divorced or going to have to divorce my ex-husband. And this is, a, I think, a good thing for all young actors out there. I got the biggest job of my career, and I've just done eight episodes for Disney last year, nine months filming, of The Full Monty. Oh. And it's the continuation of the story 25 years on, and there are the original cast, all of whom were just brilliant, but none of the original cast came from Sheffield. Ah. And I do. <laughs> so I am very privileged to have joined the cast of The Full Monty and spent a lot of time in my home city of Sheffield last year uh, filming some brilliant scripts by mm. Simon Beaufoy, who wrote the film, and the gorgeous writer Alice Nutter. And waving the gay flag in The Full Monty as a new character who I think will be rather fun for people who perhaps know me as the right-wing father of Olivia Coleman from Peep Show. <laughs> yes. This is more pink and purple. <laughs> and Brilliant. How do you choose between pink and purple? Well, it's all in the grip, so I'm told. <laughs> um, but... I wore pink and purple for nine months. Cardis, shirts, uh, a gallimophery of fine wardrobe. And it took me back to when I was finding out what my style was in our teenage years. And mm. we were all, there was a boutique in Rotherham called Sexy Rexy. <laughs> just by the bus station. Why did it never go international? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Probably because people saw me in the green see-through chiffon shirt 
and that's quite hard to say, so I'll do it again, the green see-through chiffon shirt uh, that I bought. Now, mine is not a body that should really ever touch lycra or anything clingy. But on this occasion, I invested a considerable amount of pocket money in this see-through shirt, which I then wore proudly to the local photographic society. And I had bought with it a badge. Uh, This is when I'm about to make your podcast a little X-rated, I'm afraid, because my mother mother sewed the badge on. She was great. She sewed the badge on. (laughs) And I went to the photographic society, see-through shirt, little badge on the breast, which had a picture of a cat lying back in a champagne glass. Get that picture in your heads, boys and girls. (laughs) The photographic society consisted mainly of older men who gathered to take pictures of attractive young women on studio nights in the Mm. parish hall. And on this particular night, they all started looking at my shirt and... (coughs) (coughs) Until somebody actually asked and said, who put that on your shirt for you? I said, oh, my mother. Did she? Now, I hadn't understood the meaning I just liked the picture of the cat in the champagne glass. I thought it showed the sort of lifestyle that I would like to live. That was me, a cat laid back. But underneath the cat in the champagne glass was the slogan, happiness is a tight pussy. <laughs> Which meant nothing to you at all. No, darling. And do you know what? It never has. <laughs> to me, the vagina is like the lost sands of the Kalahari. <laughs> Somewhere I haven't been and I've no intention of going. Um, and my mother, bless her, obviously had never heard of a slang term for it. She blindly sewed it on for me and I wore it blazoned on my shirt until uh, it was pointed out that it was actually obscene. Mm. So I think the thing I'm going to not see ever again is my green see-through shirt with my tight pussy badge. Yes. I think it's best left. Yes, the emblem of your naivety. Mm. Mm. Quite right. Okay, well... What's the shop again? Sexy? Sexy Rexy. Sexy Rexy. Well, I mean, I'm going to go to Sexy Rexy because I think that I'd look quite good in a see-through chiffon shirt. I Yes, I think. And if we go back to your heebie-jeebie days, <laughs> oh, I, I think Sexy Rexy could do you a complete look. I think you're probably right. Yes, the flowing shirt. Marvellous. I'd look marvellous. I'm not deluded at all. Paul, you are one of the funniest and most charming men in the world. I've always loved talking to you and being in your company, and it's really delightful of you to do this for me. Thank you so much. That's very kind, and I am very honoured to have worked with MFS. (laughs) Have you got a sail on? (laughs) Thank you, Michael. It's been an absolute joy to chat to you, just as it was when we worked together and spent time together regularly. And um, the great thing about what's come out of lockdown and all these lovely podcasts is that one has the chance to do this, and it's much appreciated. You have been listening to My Time Capsule 
with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Paul Clayton. Thank you very much to him, and thank you for listening. You'll find a link in the description of this episode to Paul's charities, if you'd like to find out more about them, and to his books, if he's entertained you enough to tempt you to read them, which I'm sure he has. You'll also find a link to Acast Plus, where, for a very small monthly fee, you can sign up to get this podcast ad-free. Imagine that. Actually, we really do appreciate the help. So thanks if you can afford to sign up. And talking of help, you can also help us by rating our efforts with five stars, hopefully, and sharing this podcast with your friends. If you're dead keen, then do write a review. We read them all, I promise, and are most touched by your comments and mostly praise. Or come and have a chat on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. You'll find both me and my time capsule there. I nearly always reply. In fact, I may even be the first to make contact to say thanks for following me. You never know. The theme tune by Pass the Peas Music is available on Spotify if you want to liven up a kitchen disco. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, all that talk of glamorous travel has made me yearn for a holiday. So I'm off to the travel agents. Uh, not the last one I went to, obviously. You heard about what happened there, didn't you? Yeah, I said to them I want to go somewhere where very few people go that's warm and secluded. They brought me in the photocopier cupboard. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.